This presentation was from Yox Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. So, would you two like to come up and I will um, introduce you? That way I can, you know, point at which one of you is which. Do we... How do we do this? Oh, like we can that? do it like this, yeah. Like that? Are we going, I'm going on going this on. Side? Yeah. Okay. Pose for pictures. I have to get, hang on, I can't get my mic right around like that, though. Yeah. You'll have to just put your arm Jack's, the, Jack's cool. the tallest station guy you've ever met. That's how it works. <laughs> I'm sure it's true. Guys here. It's true. And Matt's the short white guy. Yeah. That's, How's that work? Yeah. So this one's Matt. It actually goes down that way. That one's Jack. And they, <laughs> This is the funniest intro I've ever done. <laughs> and now they're going to do something really boring like wireframes. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. How's yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure it'll be more interesting than that, given our intro. Yes. So I hand it over to you two. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Donna. So, <laughs> thank you. Thanks for all coming. I thought when we heard that next door had pulled out, we thought we might get the entire conference, but apparently there's something really good over next door, but not as good as us, so definitely stay. Um, look, Jack and I are going to talk about uh, turning wireframes into polished visuals, as our slide and your, and your little card says there. Um, there's a couple of things that we have experienced over the last few years with a few different clients, um, problems that we've encountered, I suppose, and we want to talk you through some of those and set the scene for why we think that this method might be um, worth you listening to and, and how it might help with some of those problems. So as a user experience designer, one of the problems that I see is that visual design is not always a user-centered process. So we go through all of these things as user experience designers to research and go through ideation and uh, come up with our wireframes and all of that stuff and then go through usability testing other me mechanisms to validate what we've done. But oftentimes at that point or somewhere through that point, we hand across to a talented visual designer and all of a sudden it's, it's, it just moves out of a user experience process. Not always the case, but oftentimes that happens. In fact, in my experience, the majority of the time. Consequently, oftentimes visual design is not a data-driven process. It's, it's at the whim, again, of a, of a talented designer. Um, and as a user experience practitioner, oftentimes you sort of lose control of the visual design process at that point. You hopefully give them some kind of a brief and you hand it to them, and then it disappears and all of a sudden you're just crossing your fingers and hoping that what comes out the other side is, is, is good. Yep, and as a visual designer, um, some of the problems we've observed is um, generally when I go, go to a um, project, um, the design brief will consist of a, usability, um, a, UX, a set of UX goals and a um, set of person, personas and um, some product walkthrough and um, a brand guideline from the company. And there's, rare, there's a very um, lack of guidance in terms of what... Um, the visual design brief is, and when there is, um, it's generally coming from um, stakeholders who float around buzzwords like flat, minimal, or Scandinavian design. <laughs> <clears throat> and so, generally, there's a very there's a lack of underst um, understanding of what the actual visual attributes that the specific users actually find desirable in a digital product, and the result is that then the visual designer has to sort of come up with their own design narrative on the visual design, and then it gets reviewed by stakeholders who um, 
generally give very subjective opinions like there's too much yellow, not enough yellow, or I like drop shadows, um, can I have drop shadows? So, so we're, going to, we're going to go through this talk and, and, and sort of frame it in the context of a product that we've been working on for quite some time, in fact about two and a half or three years now. We've been working uh, with our colleague Shane Morris with um, Cochlear for about six years, I think, um, in various different capacities on a couple of different products. And the main one that we're working on uh, right now is a, a product that um, allows people who have a bionic hearing implant to control that hearing implant um, using a device in their hands. Is, is everyone familiar with Cochlear and what they do and generally speaking how that works? I don't want to spend too much time going through that, but generally there is a, there's a device that sits on somebody's ear, there's an implanted component that sits inside their head, underneath the skin and on top of a bone, a piece of bone that's cut out of their head there. Um, and it has microphones on it, it receives sound, it turns it into impulses that then stimulate the auditory nerve. The other piece of the, of the product set, I suppose, is, is a mechanism that allows people to adjust that hearing. They might want to turn their volume up or down or change programs to suit, suit different listening environments. And the piece that we've been working on is that, is that um, device or that product, and in our case it turns out to be a phone app that allows them to control their hearing and check their status and that kind of stuff. All right. So, Again, we're not going to go through too much through our actual product design process or coming towards wireframes and going through developing our personas and doing our research and all of that kind of stuff. We just, I'm going to ask you to take it as read that we went through that process and at some points along the way we came up through sketching and other, other um, um, procedures, we came up with a set of um, wireframes that represented the functions and features uh, that we wanted to present users in order for them to meet their goals. So that's kind of the, so that gets us up to speed with the story of we have a product, we have an idea, we have some wireframes potentially, and now how do we move towards preparing a visual design brief? All right, so the visual design brief method, that's what we're all here to see. There's a bit of a diversion that I have to do first. Uh, no, actually, I'll take us through the steps in the visual design brief. So this will give you a bit of an overview. We're going to walk through each of these steps in a fair amount of detail through this talk. That's what this talk is about. Uh, but let me just cover them very quickly at the highest level. The first thing we do is devise a set of bipolar pairs. And I'll talk about what those bipolar pairs are in a moment. We take those bipolar pairs in step two out to customers and ask them what they think of those bipolar pairs. And, and poll them to get some sort of idea of, of where they sit on various uh, continua. At point three, we take the input that we got through that polling process, we analyze it, and we plot the results on a set of continua. And we, at that point, have what we're calling a design DNA, which gives us a feel for what kind of uh, look and feel, if you like, to want to use a, a 90s term, what sort of look and feel uh, customers might want to uh, have in this, in this product that they use. In response to that design DNA, and we'll show you what that looks like in a moment, we create a set of mood boards. We then take those mood boards back out to customers and evaluate those to see if customers like them and to see if they work well with what they originally told us. We use that as an input to do our generative design work where we come up with a visual design that we'll then apply to our um, wireframes. And we can iterate at that stage through a, a steps of design and, and iterate. Sorry, design and validate. So that's our process at the highest level. It fits into the overall UX process around about here, where that blue square is. So it's somewhere after the early sort of research phase and after some of the early ideation 
uh, pieces that we go through. And it's in that big design piece. It can happen sort of early into or before the wireframing starts or through the wireframing process or even at the end of the wireframing process. Okay. We're going to talk about steps in detail, but first I need to do another diversion. I need to, need to talk to us about BERTs. Has anybody heard of BERTs? Anybody heard of BERTs? Okay, good. Not too many. So BERTs are bipolar emotional response tests, and they're a method for determining people's subjective response to any, defined, any designed artifact um, by plotting their feelings about it along a range of dimensions. So, We'll break that apart because that's a fair mouthful. But they, were, they probably came to prominence in the UX community in about 2002 when the BBC redesigned their major public-facing news website, which was called the Glass Wall Redesign. That's a fair ways back. And they uh, took the design that they had and went out to customers and asked them how they felt about or asked them to rate that design. And they used these, uh, these continua, if you like, and these are the bipolar parts of it, two poles along a continuum. And their customers came back and said, well, we currently think, we think that your current design is sort of brightish more than it is dull. We think it's very professional as opposed to amateur. We think it's light, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so that's a mechanism that they use to rate an existing design. We're leveraging that, which is a, a mechanism that's used in behavioral psychology, to rather than evaluate something that is existing, come up with a mechanism for, um, for a new, or come up with a brief for a new visual design. Okay, so let's go through these steps one by one. We talked about BERTs. The first step is to come up with our set of those uh, bipolar extremes, okay? And these are the ones that we came up with. I'm conscious that they're a little bit small. Can you guys at the back, can you folks at the back see those? Not sure what we do if you can't. Um, so the first one that we came up was, um, was intricate versus minimal. So is it sort of finely detailed or is it relatively stripped back? The next one we came up with was traditional versus avant-garde. And I'm going to come back to that term avant-garde in a moment. Um, so bear with me. But traditional versus avant-garde. Professional versus casual. Natural versus engineered. Warm versus cool. Passionate versus clinical, and subtle versus bold. So we came up with this set of bipolar pairs, and our objective is in the next stage to go out and, and take them to customers and say, when you're thinking about this product, where, where should this product sit on each, of these, on each of these scales? But I want to tell you a couple of things about these, um, these bipolar pieces before we move on. We learned a couple of things through this process. One is to stick to between five and ten dimensions. If you get much more than five or tens, it, it starts to get very confusing and people struggle to wrap their head around them and it's hard to make them distinct and unique on their own. The second is to use terms that audience, the audience will understand. And I think a lesson learned for us was when we used the term avant-garde right at that sort of far end there, I don't think all of our audience understood what avant-garde meant. I think we're a little bit too avant-garde in our terminology. <coughs> The next one is to cover the gamut with uh, the continuous. So try and make sure that once you've assembled all of these things, that there aren't any questions left for you. You know, oh, but should it be such and such? You want to try and cover the entire depth of, uh, of what you want to know. But similarly, you don't want there to be much overlap. You don't want, you wouldn't, for example, have warm and cool and winter and summer. You don't want, it, you don't want people to have to kind of tease those apart on their own. You want them to be fairly unique and distinct. 
The BBC had some kind of made some value judgments in, in their bipolar extremes. They had some things that appeared negative and positive, and we would suggest that if you're creating a brief, if you're trying to use these mechanisms to create a brief, you don't come up with negative and positive pieces because it's unlikely that anybody is going to say, I want to see something that's negative, right? So you, so you try and come up with things that don't have a value connotation to them. That's quite important when using them generatively. And the last one is to leave room for designer interpretation. They're deliberately somewhat obtuse. They're somewhat kind of ambiguous is not the right term, but they sort of create the opportunity for the designer to interpret what was said there. They're not absolutely strict and, and, and really heavily defined, but they certainly give the feel for, for what you're trying to, to do there with the visual design. I guess the last and unspoken point on here is that if you're struggling to come up with a set of them, our ones work pretty well and can work across a number of situations, so feel free to use those. Okay, so that was step one, which was to come up with your, bi with your bipolar continua. Second one, second step is to take those out to customers and ask them what they think. So we did that in a, um, in a survey, an online survey, and amongst a number of other questions through this survey, survey we asked uh, our customers or our users, when adjusting and monitoring my hearing, I want tools that look and feel, and then they have to answer, they have to answer these, um, each of these points. And there's a couple of things to note here. You want to provide task context, and you want to be specific about your audience. You want to segment by persona, and you want to make sure that you're targeting your folks. Because this, what we, en we end up with this thing that we're calling a design DNA, and it's particular to the persona, and it's particular to the task they're performing. So in this case, for our product, the, the, our folks were adjusting their hearing. They were checking to see if everything is working appropriately. They're doing some relatively serious things. And the design DNA is particular to that context. If we were designing an app that allowed people to, cochlear implant recipients, to uh, play a game that didn't have major ramifications for their hearing or anything else, we might end up with a different set of design DNA because it might end up being a little bit less professional, maybe, or it might be a bit more frivolous, or, or it, it might change and move around. So it's important to consider the context and provide that in your, in your survey, if you're going out through a survey, and make sure you think about users, obviously, and their segments. Okay, so we've come up with our continuum. We've gone and asked people where they think the product should sit for them, and then we plot our results, and this is what, this is what we ended up with. So this is the, what we're calling the design DNA for these folks who are using uh, cochlear implants when they're monitoring and adjusting their hearing. Okay? So bear with me, but it's essentially more minimal than it is intricate and detailed, finely detailed. It's somewhere in the, if we can trust that they understood what traditional versus avant-garde means, it's somewhere in the middle, which probably means modern. Um, it has a bet each way in terms of professional versus casual, but it's slightly more professional because they take this stuff seriously. It's more natural than engineered, which is important because uh, uh, cochlear is an innovation, has in the past been an innovation-led uh, organization. And there are stakeholders that we want to talk to about this design who in some cases might get all excited about engineering whizzy stuff, and we need to be able to have the conversation to say, well, customers feel that it needs to be more natural. Uh, it's possibly warmer than it is cool. Uh, it's more clinical than it is passionate, and it's somewhat bold. So that's the that's our that effectively at this point that can be a design brief. You could, on some level, you could take that away and say to your visual designer, 
respond to this. Here's the wireframes, respond to this. This is the point where I hand over Jack. So, um, thanks Matt. So now we have the design DNA. Um, next step is we want to um, use that DNA as the brief and explore different extremities of um, visual styles and see what we believe would meet the need. And um, so let's see. So like I said, so we know what the mo um, mood boards we're looking for. Oh, sorry, um, what the DNA is. And this is an example of what the mood board um, that we created. So before I dive into talking about the mood boards, let me take a step back. The reason we use mood board here is it's like wireframe for visual styles. It's cheap, it's fast, and it's very nimble. So um, because we have the DNA and the bipolar scale, it's essentially um, a, a, a visual tool for us to try and sort of test, um, um, test extremities of those, um, those poles. So, um, and to create these mood boards, um, there's probably two points you have to consider. Um, one is what your product is going to be in the end and what your product is going to do. So what, what you want to do is create mood boards that somewhat reflect what your final, final product is. Um, in our case, we knew that um, this was going to be an app or a tablet or um, it's going to be some form of software. So the um, mood boards are made up of UI samples that we find um, throughout the web from could be from Dribbble, could be from Pinterest, or just websites that we generally liked. And then another point is because we know that it's going to be a software that's going to help the um, recipients to monitor hearing and change volumes. So um, a lot of the theme is based around sort of um, volume changing and also sort of audio. So, um, so this particular mood board here is one of the first ones we put together. And um, at that time when we put this together, um, flat and minimal was all the rage. And um, around the office and also myself as the visual designer, um, I really liked this style, like stripping back um, all the sort of visual noises and sort of bringing the core elements up um, and have a lot of white spaces around. So we put this mood board together. And what you want to do next is go back to the bipolar scale and plot where you think this mood board sits on it. So that way, you can see exactly um, how far or how close you are to um, what the customer's preferences are. Um, so one thing to bear in mind, the customer preference here is not a cold, hard rule on what the final product should be, but rather a tool for you to be mindful and aware of what your customers are actually looking for in your product. So you are still allowed to sort of test the extremities and have some solid story and idea or a design narrative behind your um, designs, and also sorry, behind your mood boards. So let me show you another mood board that we put together. So um, because Cochlear is an engineering organization, so one of the ideas that we floated around was we wanted to celebrate the passion, the passion they have for sort of performance and empowerment. So in this case, we created a mood board with a product image that's sort of enlarged um, in full height um, and take the photos kind of taken from a lower angle so you can see all the industrial 
um, design details. And sort of couple that with um, the, um, the use of um, typography. So um, there's a sort of more dramatic change with, between typography. So the title case, it's a lot bolder and stronger than the body case. So um, that way, we're sort of trying to, I guess, and we couple in sort of that industrial design detail with um, a dramatic use of typography. We believe it feels a bit more sort of engineered and cool and, sort of, and at the same time professional and passionate. And let me show you another example of a mood board. So um, this particular mood board's a bit more balanced and calm. Um, so there's, it's flat um, in essence but um, the use of white space is a little bit more tame, so it's, um, it doesn't, it's comfortable, but it doesn't break um, the proximity of relationships between components. And the use of typography, it's sort of quite grounded, so um, sort of much more sort of heavier weights of typography. And um, the use of color is sort of, um, sort of sparing, so it's really just, it's sort of grounded behind a layer of um, gray, um, gray tones, and then um, the colors are sort of there to sort of bring prominence rather than dominance um, over all the um, information. And this is, so out of all the um, mood boards we put together, this was the one that we believe that sort of met, that was the closest to what the customer's preference were. So all in all, we put together, yeah, quite a lot of mood boards, but we believe there was sort of six mood boards with sort of really strong stories that we thought we um, really liked. Um, and they basically pushed the bipolar scale in different ways. So they range from sort of up on the top left, it's kind of like calm and balanced and top right's um, flat and minimal. In the middle left is like warm and natural and middle right is sort of soft and light type of visual style, and then bottom left, there was that sort of um, performance and empowerment, and on the bottom right, it's sort of flat, bold, and geometric. So now we have these mood boards. We want to get it out to our customers and ask them what their first impressions of these mood boards are. And to do that, what we've done is we've selected um, 30 um, a set of 30 adjectives made up of positive and negative um, adjectives. And these adjectives um, are derived from either your um, UX goals, your business goals, or um, your sort of core brand values. And so an example for Cochlea was um, in terms of brand, core brand values like honest, friendly, um, innovative, um, and reliable. And an uh, example of the business goals were sort of being the, um, the first impression should be sort of this thing is desirable, this, um, this software is appealing, this software is fun or exciting. And in terms of UX goals is you want to make sure they don't tip um, confusing or too technical or busy as just in general as a UX goal. So. And from there, we randomize all these um, adjectives and take them out to our customers. And we ask them to use one or many, or as many as they like, 
to des describe their first impression of each of these mood boards. Um, important thing to note here is this, ex this process is n does not aim to go out and tell and discover which mood board does your um, customers like best, but rather it's there to sort of give you um, a sort of to, um, to, um, to collect the desired, to understand the desired um, emotional response from that first impression. So in this case, actually, yeah. And so in this case, when we took this out to our customers, we know where it sort of sits on the um, bipolar scale. And our customers thought this mood board looked and felt like that. So that was pretty disappointing. Because when we first put this mood board together, everyone in the office loved it. It was minimal. It was flat. And it was sort of like the trendy thing at that time. Um, but what our customers has, has ended up telling us is by stripping back all those sort of visual noise or, um, and then creating all this sort of white space to allow the content to breathe, um, it actually made it more confusing, complex, and technical. Let me show you another one. So this is another mood board that we sent our tests. And yeah, so from the bipolar scale, we know that this is leaning towards so closer to the customer preference. And our users thought this looked and felt like this. So um, out of all the mood boards that we tested, this scored the strongest. And um, when we took it to the stakeholders, um, when this is what they saw, they were very confident that it's OK. Like we, we want to move forward in this, in this direction. This, yeah. Right, so now we take the strongest mood board as a visual design inspiration. Now we have it. And we want to marry it up with the visual DNA that we know and the um, adjectives that was used by um, the, our customers to describe that mood board and also the brand guideline so we can so, um, so make sure that whatever design we do come up with in the end adheres to the brand guideline. And then inject that into the wireframe. So after um, several rounds of concepts and iterations, this was sort of our final design that we believe met the brief the best. And let's just see it. So when we put it back up against the mood board, as you can see, we sort of leverage a lot of the style cue, um, visual cues from the mood board. So um, as you can see, so we use sort of the same weight of typography, so it feels grounded and makes the general um, app looks so kind of like it sort of speaks an honest language. Um, the use of color um, in terms of, sort of the proportions of light and dark colors, it's fairly similar. And also that sort of principle of using colors sparingly, like prominence over dominance, uh, sort of transferred across where colors are used very purposefully just for status or like volume fill. Um, another thing that we sort of took over is, um, is remembering that one of the adjectives was from familiarity. So we sort of leverage that in the mood board, there's um, sort of the, um, the leverage of that 
those visual cues from the physical world by sort of having a flat but still showing um, sense of depth. So we took that also over and built that into our UI. And now that we have a design that everybody was confident in, um, we wanted to take it back out to the customer and invalidate this. And again, we asked them to poll um, what this visual design was set on the bipolar scale. And this was what our customers thought this looked and felt. Oh, sorry, how it polled on the scale. So it's a little bit too traditional and um, it's a little bit too intricate. But in the tail end, it's sort of trending in the same way. And again, we asked them what they thought this looked and felt like upon first impression. Um, so in terms of the adjective they used, um, in general, they're relatively the same, same set, but the order is slightly different. So at this point, um, internally, as a design team, we looked at this, and we're pretty happy with the way it is. It's certainly not a process, process of exact science because there's a lot of sort of visual stuff. So, um, so there's a lot of things to consider in terms of visuals, but we're very confident that's sort of kicking all the goals that we're um, looking out to kick. And also with the traditional intricate um, being sort of a little bit deviated from the DNA, we're quite confident with small tweaks that we'll be able to sort of alleviate those problems. So we took it to the stakeholders and um, yeah, so there wasn't a lot of pushbacks, if any. Um, and they were quite happy and confident that the process um, works. And we decided to move, move ahead and apply this to the rest of the UI. Great. Back to Matt. Thanks, Jack. So I guess what we're, what we're trying to do, in case it isn't completely obvious, let me just summarize a little bit. What we're trying to do is to is to reduce the, the gap between um, what you do when you finish with your wireframes or when you have some ideas around your wireframes and what, um, and what then you tell your visual designer and what ends up coming out at the other side. It's clearly, as Jack says, it's not a precise science and so you can't punch numbers in one end and a visual design pops out the other. And I hope nobody arrived at this talk with that impression in mind. But we're just trying to reduce the ambiguity through that process and bring it down to a sort of a measurable step-by-step process whereby stakeholders can be engaged in it and they can understand how it works and they can see that there's a method there and they can have some trust in that. Um, and I think that that's really important for making sure that, you're, that you, you carry your designs or that your designs get adopted and, and move through the organisation. All right. So this is, this is what the final product looks like, and it was released after how many Cochlear folks, and our, our friends from Cochlear are sort of in this part of the room here. Um, it, it, it's, it's like three years or something like that since the start of since Sarge. Three years or something like that. So after sort of three years of evolution, just to be clear, that design process that we mentioned to you didn't take three years. The, the, the project took three years because it's a heavily regulated industry, obviously. There's a hunk of metal and electronics inside your head and everything else. And so there's, there's quite a fair bit that, that goes on there to get that through um, the regulatory bodies around the world. But after all that time, this is, this is where we came to. Um, and 
Jack alluded to us uh, being a, needing to deal with some things on that traditional aspect, uh, part of the spectrum there, and we feel as though we've ad addressed some of those and moved it around a little bit to get it a bit more in line. Um, there are some sort of uh, those warm brown colours in there are part of the cochlear brand, um, the brand colours, and so we've sort of managed to get those in there without um, being too overpowering. Um, so that's where we've ended up. In terms of the results within the organisation and how this works as a, as a mechanism and did we solve any of the problems that we saw, um, there's a couple of things that, that, that happened as a result of this. And, and, I, and some of the stakeholders are in the room, so I hope I'm not being too offensive or bolshy. But, um, but you know, and you would be familiar with this, right? As Jack said, we, you often come across stakeholders who, who feel as though they need to have input on things like drop shadows or, you know, I think there should be photos in here or whatever else. And so we, we found that after we demonstrated that, we, that there is a process and it's empirical and it's based on research, et cetera, et cetera, that, that people stopped asking for drop shadows um, and that people started to trust the process and, start, and trust the people who are involved. And that people, and the emphasis on this third point is not that I don't know. This is a, this is a good thing. This is, this is senior strategic product stakeholders saying, I don't know, it's not my job to know. What do our customers say? And, and Cochlear has been going on a journey of change um, that we've been lucky enough to witness over the last few years where they're becoming incredibly data-driven and market insight-driven, and they're saying this kind of stuff, whereas previously, oftentimes, as an innovation-led organisation, it was very much about parts of the organisation coming up with really smart ideas and pitching them against one another. And they've always had a clinical um, research element that drove you know, all of the stuff that they do, but it's very much moved into this position where they're thinking about what customers want at every stage of, of the game, and it's, it's amazing to see that sort of stuff happen in an organisation. So that's what happens with stakeholders if you do this, we think, anyway. Um, what happens for users? Well, you're much more likely to find yourself in a situation where users encounter products that feel like a natural part of their lives because you've genuinely asked them what they want to see in their lives from a visual perspective. Uh, and we don't always get the opportunity to ask that from a visual perspective of our, our customers and our users. And then from a designer's perspective, we receive, and, and visual designers receive clear direction, and, and they know when their design is working because you have a mechanism to test uh, whether it is working and whether it's working for customers as you move along through that process. So we've found it to be pretty helpful. We don't think it's a, a method that's particular just to you know, this kind of a client. We think it's fairly universal um, and it's worth having a look at the next time you go through a, a process of trying to come up with a visual design brief. So just to recap, and if anybody didn't get a shot of it before, this is, these are our steps. Devise the bipolar pairs or use ours if you like. Um, uh, poll your customers to see where their desired experience sits across those continua. Um, analyze those results and plot them so you get your design DNA. And I forgot to say this before, but at that point, you're going back to your stakeholders and saying, this is what we think the design DNA is, okay? Um, at number four, you're creating mood boards in response to that. As Jack says, that can be an incredibly quick and cheap process of, of cutting and pasting things off, off websites, Pinterest and Dribbble and Behance and all of those kind of things. Um, assembling those mood boards, taking them out and evaluating them based on that feedback, then going through a design and validation iteration loop and, uh, and Bob's your uncle. Any questions? That's us. Thank you. Thank you. Questions?
much. Um, my question is just about <clears throat> when you're doing the bipolar DNA on the mood boards, is that the designers just doing that or do you yeah. go to the customers at that stage? Can I answer this one? Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah, that's it. We, um, I don't think we clearly enough stated that when, when, we, um, when we had the little yellow dots in there that shows what the DNA is for that mood board, that's our opinion of what the DNA is. We haven't gone out and polled at that stage to determine what the audience thinks the design DNA is or, or what, sorry, what that mood board's DNA is. You could do that, um, but basically at that stage what we're attempting to do is to take the design DNA that we have come up with and, as Jack said before, sort of riff around the edges, sort of poke some of those things left or right just to test out whether we've got it right or whether when we asked last time we... Because it, it could be the case that... Um, you know, you design the best thing they never knew they wanted, right? You poke it out in this direction, they're like, oh, yeah, now I see that. That's really what I want. So that's all about riffing around the edges, and those, the, the DNA that we plotted there were, was our impression of what those should be. Thank you. Uh, my question is kind of similar. How do you find the, when you get a design that matches the DNA that was requested by the, the target audience, how do you find, when you find that it matches, does it reflect the initial reaction of the person? when they saw it. You mean the mood board or the final product? Yeah, the f well, the mood board, I guess, yeah. Okay, yes. Mm. So in our case, because we didn't take the mood board back out. Wait, sorry, actually. Can you <laughs> yeah, may maybe pack, unpack that for us a just a little there. bit. One more time. So you take a mood board to a client, yep. and they have an initial reaction to it. Yep. And then they fill in your questionnaire. Yep. And then you get all this other feedback from other people, and you, um, how do you find... I guess I'm talking about the design. When you go then with the design, and the design matches the, the pattern, yes. does it match their initial reaction to the mood board? Does it match their initial... So that's Often? the one I loved, right? Ah, uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that... yes. Yeah, so, so I can... Uh, no, let me answer no, this one. No. Um, so when we... <laughs> I'm, you can do the next one. So when we... When we, I think as Jack said, when we, did, when we brought back the visual design that we, or the candidate design at the end uh, and got them to nominate some adjectives, it was very much the same adjective set. They were just in some slightly different orders. So some of the adjectives they felt more, were more appropriate, were more applicable than others. So generally speaking, in our experience, it does tend to match. But it's not necessarily crucial that it does. You're looking for some sort of subjective feedback and some kind of idea that you're seeing more positive response here than negative response, I guess. So in our case, just to... Yeah, just confirm what Matt said. So, um, organised, friendly, appealing, familiar. Those adjectives appeared on the results for the mood board. Um, the orders are, like I said, sort of slightly jumbled up. But um, from our perspective, we were quite happy that these were the top five adjectives that were used to describe um, both the mood board and um, the final UI. Okay. Um, hi. Um, when you eventually did, uh, or when the organisation did usability testing in terms of actually performing tasks with the interface, um, did, were, did the results improve as a result of the testing that you did earlier on? Were the results? Um, so when they actually had to use the user interface to yeah. monitor their hearing, yeah. um, did the research that you did earlier on have an impact on whether they could use it a lot more easily? Hmm. Yeah, so um, I think best way to answer is so, this, um, so what this process does is actually create a visual design brief. Um, when you're actually executing or injecting it back to, into UI, I think what you're referring to is sort of more sort of the usability side of the visual design process. And as visual designers, I think um, if you've been in the UI space, so those things sort of just come hand in hand. Um, it's about sort of 
being aware still of all these usability um, goals you need to kick, but um, fulfilling um, what the brief is. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Let me, let me, do, an, let me do another, I'll add some extra information. Yeah. So, so we did most of our usability testing using wireframes as opposed to using visual designs. We did, we did do some validation with visual design, but most of it was on, was on the wireframes separately. But an interesting thing happened, once, we, once these visual designs started to come together, our wireframes, we almost reverse engineered some wireframes backwards out of these visual designs so that they had a much a similar shape but they stripped away some of the colors and other bits and pieces. I mean oftentimes when you test with full visuals and all of that kind of stuff people can get hung up a little bit on I prefer this color or I don't like that color or visual weight on things and you oftentimes want to separate that out. So we did test somewhat independently the usability of wireframes as opposed to the visual look and feel. Hi. So um in that process, there's a few times that you go out to customers and you perform these activities with them. What is a good amount of people to test with? Okay, so this is, this is no, not it depends, but I'm just trying to find. So I think there's, we, we sort of, um, I think I have to, how do I, mm, wait. So this is more of a qualitative exercise. So it's, what we find is, well, so in this particular case, we did, um, and it was, it was um, 30, and it was 30. And, um, and we believe we got um, all the information we need um, to illustrate what the brief is. And, but we've seen this done, we've also done this at A equals 100. And when we sort of strip back a lot of those numbers, also um, strip back and sort of profiled the A equals 100, we actually don't see the DNA change that much. So I think what that means is really the more people you have, the more concise it is, but it doesn't necessarily, I think actually shared any more information than it did at angles 30. Jack, is it right? I think from memory, um, the, the extremes just pulled in a little bit. Yeah. It became less, it became, yeah. it, its shape, the, the general profile was yeah. almost identical mm. as we got larger with bigger sample sizes, but it just became a little bit less ex extreme. It sort of normalised towards the centre a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, process like, Seems really good. Definitely stuff we'd take away and use. Um, I just had a question about because you've mentioned how subjective visual design is. When you um, when you take these, say you take the mood board out to the customers, and do you see many anomalies in that some customers think one thing is clinical, and the other customer thinks the same thing is the opposite of clinical? Um, you know, anomalies such as that, or anomalies like customers really enjoy, really think the mood board is one way, and then you do the design, and they think no, this isn't matching the mood board, and you're looking at it thinking, this is based off the mood board. They're the same thing, you know? Do you get anomalies like that occurring? Yes and no, but I think um, at least in the mood board, I think, interesting enough, in, even this whole design process itself, um, it's very educa educational in, in that sense because at the mood board stage, when you take it out, you're taking six mood boards out. So you're going to get, in our case, one that had all positive and one that had all negative. And from all these six styles, you're getting all these different type of adjectives that are describing these. And you're actually starting to build kind of like a bank of knowledge on what your customers think, what's going to be, how they're going to be describing a particular element in that sense. So, yeah, so, yeah you kind of see a little bit of trends. And, and even the stakeholders at some point, they kind of start to sort of build so becoming a bit more knowledgeable in that sense as well. Yeah. 
Terrific. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.